Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you very much, uh, Philip, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, uh, Dr. Stearns, for this kind invitation. Uh, and thank you uh, for coming out this evening. Um, it's a real treat to have you all here, and it's a treat uh, to be here at this amazing uh, institution uh, and this amazing university. When I first came, there wasn't yet a university. It was just the institute uh, back in 2009. And it's amazing to see how... Uh, how much things have changed and how far you've all come. This is a real, uh, a really incredible place, and it's a real honor to be here with you. And I hope those of you who are students, I know you're concerned about exams and things right now, but I hope that from time to time you take a deep breath and just take a moment to appreciate what a unique uh, experience you have here at NYU Abu Dhabi. It's a really phenomenal uh, place. So thank you again uh, for, for having me. The British paddlewheel steamer, the HMS Sphinx, was anchored off the Batna coast of Oman, near Al-Musana'a, on the night of October 10th, 1907, when it received some unexpected visitors. Just before 11 p.m., three young African men paddled in a canoe from shore and begged to be taken aboard. All three professed to be slaves from the nearby village of Buabali, and the commander, Shirley Litchfield, recorded their ages as 17, 20, and 22. Two of the men explained that they had run away because of ill treatment, and the third said he escaped because he had been threatened with being sold. At noon, two days later, while the ship was anchored about 20 miles further north, uh, near the town of Khadra, two more African men paddled out in a canoe followed by another at dawn the following morning. One of the young men had an iron manacle fastened around his ankle that he said his master had made him wear for the past three years. Commander Litchfield ordered the iron ring to be sawed off the man's ankle and had the scene photographed on the deck of the Sphinx to submit with his report. He also had the six fugitives photographed twice, one uh, once standing side by side along the deck of the ship wearing the clothes in which they had escaped, simple waistcloths, and then a second time in caricature, dressed up by the crew in an odd assortment of clothing and po- posed around the English bourgeois magazine, The Bystander, which they pretended to read. The photographs were sent off to the magazine and were subsequently published in a November 1907 issue. The six African fugitives were unexpected arrivals aboard the HMS Sphinx back in 1907, but they were not altogether unusual. The Sphinx had a decade-long tradition of accepting fugitive slaves off the coast of Oman and may have had something of a reputation as refuge among enslaved Africans in Batna. As the center of Oman's date production, Batna was widely known as the home of the largest concentration of Africans in the Gulf. The commander of the Sphinx began granting freedom papers to runaway slaves back in 1897, citing the authority of the Brussels Conference, although some officials had reservations about his policy. Fugitive slaves also had a habit of escaping to the British consulate in Muscat, which received more than 1,000 runaways between 1884 and 1905. The presence of a large enslaved African population on the Batana coast of Oman in the early 20th century demands some explanation. 
British treaties, after all, with the sultans of Muscat and Zanzibar, made the importation of slaves to Oman illegal back in 1845. And the British Royal Navy and its celebrated, celebrated anti-slave trade campaign had supposedly reduced the slave trade to a trickle in the decade that followed. Yet on the centennial of the act of abolition, slavery was unquestionably alive and well in the shadow of the British Empire. Well, when I began my research a little over 15 years ago, there was little room in the historical literature for those fugitive slaves aboard the HMS Sphinx. We've come a long way since then, uh, in large part due to efforts of people who are in this room uh, and based at universities here in the Gulf. But the existing historiography at the time was essentially divided into two camps. One, which emphasized the relative poverty of the Gulf and therefore the impossibility of a need for slaves or the resources to pay for them in the 19th century. And another, strongly influenced by abolitionist and colonial literature, which argued that the slave trade had been an enduring feature of the region from time immemorial. In the Oxford imperial historian Reginald Coupland's word, it ran like a scarlet thread through the history of the region. That nationalist rags-to-riches school argued that the Gulf languished in perpetual poverty until the discovery of oil and the benevolent leadership of the region's sheikhs, kings, and sultans, ushered in a period of previously unknown comfort and prosperity. And, of course, it was a perspective that Gulf governments were happy to promote uh, through public history and education. One leading Indian Ocean historian even argued that the apparent growth of the slave trade in the 19th century was merely the product of increased abolitionist fervor uh, and as a justification for colonialism because the Gulf lacked the capital to afford slaves or any, or any industries that could employ them. On the other side, the Scarlet Thread School postulated that the slave trade had been a static future embedded in Arab and Islamic identity for more than a millennium since at least the Zend revolt during the Abbasid Caliphate. Conservatives in the United States even used that literature in the run-up to the Iraq invasion in 2003 uh, to argue that the so-called Islamic slave trade was bigger and therefore worse than the Atlantic slave trade. So in my book, I propose a third way which places the rise and fall of the slave trade in the Gulf in the context of globalization. So here's my shameless plug for the book, which uh, came out uh, with Yale in 2015 um, and is also available for download off of JSTOR if you're here enrolled here at the university. I propose a third way which places the rise and fall of the slave trade in the context of globalization. This approach, I think, helps us understand the period of wealth which was generated in the 19th century that fueled a building boom in the Gulf uh, and, uh, and also helps explain the, the surge of imports of enslaved Africans in the same period. So by globalization, I mean the new technologies of transportation and communication that brought far-off populations uh, into contact and made local production dependent on far-off markets. I argue that like the transatlantic slave trade before it, the Indian Ocean slave trade of the 19th century was primarily driven not by race or religion, but by economics, boom and bust cycles, and the vicissitudes of supply and demand. As European and North American demand for sugar, and then later cotton and tobacco, drove the Atlantic slave trade, global demand for Gulf commodities, including dates and pearls, drove the slave trade to the Gulf. Dates and pearls, the lifeblood of the Gulf economy in the 19th century, had formerly been produced for local and regional markets centered on South Asia and the Middle East. But in the 19th century, both commodities found soaring new demand in far-off places. But the date and pearl booms also fueled a demand for labor, which was increasingly found in East Africa, 
through the slave trade. Just as in the Atlantic world, globalization in the Indian Ocean fueled a demand that incentivized coercive labor practices, including slavery. Just as in earlier and later periods of globalization, such as the turn of the 16th century and the close of the 20th century, the late 19th century interwove economies and populations and allowed for spectacular growth and equally spectacular destruction. As early as 1863, Sheikh Mohammed bin Thani of Doha could remark to William Palgrave, we are all from the highest to the lowest slaves of one master, the pearl. He was lamenting the growing dependence of the region on the caprice of global markets. If we could transport ourselves back to 1907 and to the HMS Sphinx, what would we see? The Sandy Arabian coastline that stretches between Muscat and Kuwait was punctuated with lively fishing villages and busy port towns. The Gulf possessed half of the world's date palms, and visitors marveled at the seemingly endless green of date plantations that stretched for miles into the interior to the, along the coast north of Muscat. During the annual date harvest, the port towns teemed with stevedores, many of them of African descent, loading ships, date packers, mostly women, working in go-downs to box dates and bag them for exports as camel caravans delivered fresh tons of dates from the interior daily. On the shore, fishermen hauled in their catches. More than 30,000 men on 3,500 fishing boats plied the waters off Oman, and Africans were frequently among their crews. The smell of the daily catch surrounded fish markets while on beaches, anchovies dried and fish smoked beside fishermen repairing their nets. In the purling months, men, thousands of men packed into boats, chanting, singing, and drumming as they rowed out to the Gulf, where they would stay for months at a time. More than 64 men, uh, more than 64,000 men on some 3,400 boats worked in the purling industry at its height in 1915. Perhaps a quarter or more of these diving crews were men of African ancestry. Stevedores loaded ships bound for India with dates, dried limes, ghee, and unloaded bags of rice. Ships from Zanzibar brought timber, coconut fiber, tropical fruits and spices, and slave oarsmen rowed merchandise out to waiting ships on the harbor and escorted ships' crews to shore between uh, Muscat and Matra. American ships took dates and hides and brought in exchange cash and their main import, ironically, oil in the form of kerosene. Enslaved Africans lived and worked in each of the major cities of the Gulf and made up a substantial portion of rural populations as well. In 1905, Lorimer estimated that Africans made up approximately 17% of the total population of coastal eastern Arabia between Oman and Kuwait. This included 11% of Kuwait's population, 22% of Qatar's population, 11% of Bahrain's population, 28% of the Trucial Coast's population, and about a quarter of Muscat and Matra's population. By contrast, African Americans made up about 10 to 12% of the U.S. population, according to the censuses of 1900 and 1910. But even if we disregard Lorimer's estimates, there's overwhelming evidence for a significant African presence in the Gulf in the 19th century. This evidence takes the form of photographs, letters, diaries, publications of foreign visitors, Royal Navy records, Arabic correspondence that was seized aboard slave dows, ethnomusicology, including the Lewa tradition, missionary records, Islamic jurisprudence, fiqh, 
colonial reports, correspondence, and hundreds of manumission testimonies preserved in the British Library, as well as the oral tradition of descendants of enslaved Africans living in the Gulf today. Africans in the Gulf labored at a variety of tasks, ranging from the maritime, diving, sailing, fishing, steving, crewing, to the agricultural, irrigating, pollinating, harvesting, maintaining orchards, date groves, fields, various crops, and working in animal husbandry. African men worked in purling crews and on date plantations, although many also worked in construction and in the gathering and porterage of construction materials. Still others worked in elite households as soldiers, bodyguards, and retainers of rulers. Many women hauled water, prepared meals, produced handicrafts, worked in childcare, and as attendants of domestics for households. But the two biggest uses of slave labor in the Gulf were the production of dates and pearls. These two industries grew in dependence on global markets, and so too did the Gulf become dependent on slave labor. The first Gulf commodity swept up into global markets was the date. At the turn of the 20th century, more than half of the world's estimated 90 million date palms grew in the countries touching the Arabian Gulf, with an estimated 30 million grown in Iraq alone. Oman's share of the world's date palms was relatively small, approximately 4 million trees, and yet it was Oman that contributed the most to the creation of global markets for dates, including the lucrative market in the United States. American ships carrying cotton cloth from Massachusetts mills visited Omani-controlled Zanzibar annually beginning in the first years of the 19th century and within a few decades came to dominate international trade on the island. Following the seasonal monsoon winds of the western Indian Ocean, American ships visited Arabia on these voyages to exchange cotton cloth, peace goods, and specie for coffee hides and, of course, dates. Muscat was the center of Arabian date exports, and Oman was the home to a particularly hardy variety of dates, which could survive lengthy sea voyages and which ripened earlier than most dates on account of Oman's southern latitude and intense summer heat. The far variety of dates would ripen early, in August, which would allow American ships enough time to load dates at Muscat, trade at Zanzibar, catch the seasonal monsoon winds, and make the 100-day journey back home in time for the winter holidays. For example, uh, the Glide, an American bark, sailed into Muscat Harbor in September of 1862. It had left Salem, Massachusetts six months earlier. It stopped first at Zanzibar and then Aden to load coffee, ivory, hides, gum copal, beeswax, and chili peppers. But its most valuable cargo of all was to be loaded at Muscat. It had been built the previous year specifically for the Indian Ocean trade, and this was the ship's second voyage to Muscat. After 10 days with negotiation with merchants, lighters began to pull up alongside the glide to load heavy bags of soft, sticky dates. Workers hired from shore toiled for hours storing palm frond bags uh, for, uh, while into the hold while the glide's crew unloaded stone ballast into the harbor. For 20 more days, workers unloaded hundreds of bags of dates, uh, 2,060 in all in intense heat with temperatures ranging from 92 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade and very thick swarms of hornets who harassed the, uh, the workers, wounding 10 or 20 men a day. But all of this was endured for the profits the dates would bring on arrival in the United States. In the final days before the departure, the glides uh, was treated uh, 
to a feast thrown by Muscat merchants and a party featuring a troupe of African dancers and drummers. And following the month's stay in the harbor, the glide sailed for Salem with more than 200 tons of dates. As American ships frequently returned from their voyages in the autumn, the arrival of Arabian dates in New York before Thanksgiving became an American tradition. Grocers would chisel off dates with an ice pick for eager customers. With the advent of steamships in the mid-19th century and the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, the voyage from the Gulf to New York was cut to just 60 days, and merchants began to add varieties of dates from Basra to their annual imports of far dates from Muscat. By 1885, Americans imported more than 10 million pounds of dates annually, and one British observer noted that it was from the labors of the date cultivator that Oman derives most wealth such as it has. American date imports grew from an average of 10 to 20 million pounds annually. Um, Here's another one of these uh, ships. This is the Imam, uh, built around the same time. It looks very similar. Marketed in the United States under names such as Dromedary, Using all kinds of Orientalist imagery, dates found wide markets in the United States. Here's another date from the Saturday, uh, advertisement from the Saturday Evening Post with the sort of archetypal uh, uh, Bedouin uh, handing over dates uh, to the awaiting American uh, woman. And here's a reminder that eating dates is eating food and candy in one. And if you look up closely, you can see the nice imagery that's being reinforced there. Date imports then soared to 79 million pounds by 1925. Ships would race from the Gulf to New York to catch the highest prices, and consumers could follow the progress of the race in the New York Times. The fruit docks of Brooklyn teemed with activity throughout the fall as ships arrived with hundreds of tons of dates each year. Before the advent of manufactured sweets around 1900, Americans' chief confection was dates, which had become a great American tradition. But the growth of the date industry sharply influenced labor demands in the Gulf, particularly in Batana, which became home to a large population of enslaved Africans. As the densest area of vegetation in eastern Arabia, Batana had a bigger population and more agricultural production than any other part of the Arabian Gulf south of Iraq. But Batana differed from other date-producing regions uh, in the uh, areas in the region because it required intense human effort to irrigate the palms. Although it has some of the richest soil in Oman, Batana receives no constant flow of water from the inland mountains and relies entirely on well water for irrigation. Batana farmers employed the zidra, a massive wooden framework with a crossbar holding a pulley wheel called a manjur, connected by rope to a bowl, to lift water from 20 feet below the surface using leather bags, which poured the cement uh, poured the water into cement-coated holding tanks, which further drained into irrigation channels, afflage, uh, to water several acres of date palms. Uh, something similar was used in, in Mesopotamia. The labor-intensive process used one male laborer, usually called a bidar, working in shifts around the clock in order to water approximately every 100 trees. The work of irrigation frequently fell on the shoulders of enslaved Africans. By 1927, it was estimated that there were 15,000 wells of this sort operating in Batana. Bertrand Thomas noted that runaway slaves were often punished with long hours in chains working on irrigation. The metallic chink of ankle chains heard perhaps from the bullpit of a well within the date clove, he wrote, uh, Grove, is an indication of some such ill-fated escapade. 
Slaves ordinarily worked unchained, but could be placed in fetters as a punishment. Date palms also have to be pollinated by hand. Offshoots or suckers have to be removed. Dead branches cut off. Extra date bunches removed. Uh, The stalks kept clean. And when the fruit is ripe, there's the enormous task of harvesting. Dates also needed to be packed or pressed and conveyed overland or by sea to ports of export. Palm frond bags had to be woven to hold the dates, and they had to be loaded into boats and conveyed to their destination. Much of this work was performed by enslaved Africans. With the extra labor required for date production, Boston became the primary destination for slaves in the Gulf in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The testimony of enslaved Africans who received manumission certificates from British consulates in the Gulf between 1907 and 1940 almost universally describe a period of at least three years at Batana prior to being sold to final destinations elsewhere in the Gulf. For young African boys, the time that passed between their arrival in Batana and their eventual sale was often equal to the time required to mature to the age, early teens, at which they could be employed in the region's other key industry, pearl diving. This final uh, graph here uh, on the dates shows the peak of imports to the United States from the Gulf in 1925. You can see the increase between 1883 and 1925, with a few exceptions. The rise of pearl fashion in Europe and North America between 1880 and 1930 was actually a revival of tastes that predominated in European royal courts during an earlier pearl age from approximately 1524 and 1656. Pearls has, had enjoyed wide popularity among European royalty following the introduction of massive amounts of pearls uh, from the Spanish and Portuguese conquests of the 16th century. Then the popularity of pearls waned following the mid-17th century upheavals in Europe through the age of revolutions until revived in the mid-19th century by royal women like Queen Victoria in England and Empress Eugenie in France. In England, Queen Victoria was a leading force in uh, in women's fashion in the early decades uh, of her reign and was in large part responsible for the revival of European pearl fashion. In her public appearances, she was consistently seen wearing a pearl necklace, and she always wore a four-strand pearl portress bracelet, a gift from Prince Consort Albert. When Albert died in 1861, Victoria went into a semi-permanent state of mourning, limiting her public appearances and wearing black for the remainder of her life. But even in mourning, she wore her trademark pearls. In Paris, Empress Eugenie uh, uh, revived the opulence of the French court uh, with her pearl necklaces, especially with black pearls. And after the fall of the French monarchy in 1871, Empress Eugenie lost her already contested fashion preeminence in Paris, the Western fashion capital. In the late Victorian era, English women looked increasingly to minor royalty, landed aristocracy, and a growing class of nouveau riche for fashion trendsetting. Fashionable women in Europe and North America looked to actresses like Sarah Bernhardt and professional beauties like Lily Langtree as role models, and both were consistently depicted wearing pearls. Following Victoria's death in 1901, her son, Edward VII, uh, and his wife, Alexandra, set numerous fashion trends and helped intensify the growing pearl revival. Alexandra wore a trademark, trademark dog collar necklace made of four rows of pearls to hide a scar on her neck inherited from a childhood disease. But her style of necklace caught on as a fashion, a popular fashion trend. At the close of the 19th century, the nouveau riche joined the ranks of high society and eventually overtook it in dictating the fashion trends in Europe and North America. In the United States, the Carnegies, Vanderbilts, Morgans, and other multimillionaires used fashion to distinguish themselves as part of a new American aristocracy. 
As wealth began to replace lineage as the measure of respectability in Europe and the United States, the bodily display of wealth grew in importance, and pearls increasingly became the vehicle of this display. If America's new aristocracy could not be royalty, they could dress like royalty. William Vanderbilt emphasized this point when he bought a pearl necklace that formerly belonged to Catherine Medici uh, and followed the purchase with an even more extravagant necklace of 500 pearls, which formerly belonged to Empress Eugenie as gifts for his wife. And then Vanderbilt's daughter, Consuelo, who inherited the necklace from her mother and symbolized the rise of the new American elite in 1895 when she married uh, Charles Spencer Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, becoming the first member of the new American aristocracy to marry into European royalty. Consuelo Vanderbilt's portraits invariably depict her wearing pearl necklaces. By the early decades of the 20th century, pearls dominated women's fashion. Uh, Mrs. Gould here wearing long strands of necklace, uh, a necklace of pearls of pearl necklaces. And you could not go to a fancy dress ball uh, without being adorned in pearls, especially if it was an Arabian Nights theme, as you see here. Enslaved Africans and free men of African ancestry accounted for a large number of the pearl divers in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Although the precise proportions are, not, are, are, are unknown, the descriptions of several contemporary observers attest that substantial, uh, substan uh, substantial African presence among the Gulf's pearling crewmen. E.L. Durand in 1878 Noticed, noted that while most haulers in the Gulf were Bedouins or Persians, the divers were generally Cedis and sometimes Cedi domestic slaves. Lorimer in 1907 said the divers were mostly poor Arabs and free Negroes or Negro slaves. Paul Harrison in 1924 said that many divers on the Trucial Coast were slaves, but not more than one half of the divers. Most of these slaves are Negroes from Africa, he noted. A few are Baluchis. Charles Belgrave in Bahrain recalled that the pullers were stalwart specimens. Many of them were Negroes with tremendous chest and arm development. In 1927, the senior naval officer in the Gulf estimated that there were 20,000 slave divers, roughly a quarter of the total, diving in the Gulf each season. Bertrand Thomas in 1929 estimated the fifth of the army of the thousands of divers that Botana sent to the diving banks each year uh, were enslaved. Alan Villiers also included huge muscular slaves among the Gulf pearl divers following his visits to the pearl banks in the 1930s. Enslaved Africans also appear in letters received at the British residency, complaining of instances of piracy and listing slaves among, quote, lost property. African divers and haulers are also visible in the photographs taken by early 20th century photographers like Alan Villiers and Ronald Coderai, and photographs of pearling crews notable, uh, include notable pearling singers uh, and reveal a significant African's presence uh, throughout the industry. So I'll show you these two graphs of the expanding pearl revenues in Bahrain from 1873 to 1906, and the comparison of the Gulf with all other parts of the world around the turn of the 20th century. All other parts of the world combined in terms of value uh, could come close to equaling the value of pearls produced here in the Gulf. Many slave divers also who, who sought manumission from British officials at Muscat, Sharjah, and Bahrain gave personal testimonies of being kidnapped from East Africa as young boys and being sent for diving as soon as they reached their early teens. For example, Juma bin Fundi, originally from Mfenesini in Zanzibar, as a boy had worked as an orderly uh, to a British officer in the East Africa campaign, boarded a dhow from Zanzibar to Mombasa where he hoped to find work, but the dhow never landed at Mombasa. 
He was kidnapped by the owner of the Dow. A man from Botany was sold to a man from Dubai, who then sold him to a man from Sharjah, who sent him to work for, uh, in pearl diving in 1926. Some divers of African descent worked as free divers, but many others were second-generation slaves who were not brought directly from East Africa, but had been born into slavery uh, here in the Gulf. The rise in pearl production required additional labor and made the importation of enslaved laborers highly profitable. Originally, these laborers came primarily from East Africa, and later they, they also were drawn from Baluchistan. In the late 19th century, slave traders increasingly targeted young boys from East Africa to work in the pearl industry, and the ratio of uh, male to female uh, is overwhelmingly uh, in favor of males, particularly uh, on slave ships captured by the Royal Navy in the Western Indian Ocean, particularly because the uh, traders were targeting boys who could be uh, put to work diving for pearls. Slave imports overwhelmingly favored males over females, and labor clearly focused on production. Life for enslaved Africans in the Gulf involved both victimization and agency. Enslaved Africans carved out autonomous spaces for themselves and preserved their dignity and culture, while at the same time suffering the alienation and abuse experienced by slave societies everywhere. Although, the whole slave, uh, although on the whole, slavery in the Gulf was presumably, quote-unquote, milder than the harshest forms of chattel or gang slavery in the Americas, examples of abuse nevertheless abound. Africans in the Gulf found ways to assert their independence and preserve elements of their culture, even if they embraced much of the culture uh, of their masters. Let me show you the rest of the pictures from the pearl diving. Uh, here is a puller uh, near the island of Bahrain divers near Kuwait. Uh, in the book, I include several testimonies of enslaved Africans. Here's one uh, preserved in the British Library uh, from somebody called Bilal bin Abdullah uh, near Dubai, who was at age 33, sought manumission, described his story of being, uh, of being kidnapped. A few pictures from on board purling boats. And a few pictures of performers uh, in Bahrain. Quick trivia question. Does anybody know which city in the Gulf had more pearling vessels than any other city? You might think Muharraq. You can see it up there with uh, 350. But apparently it was actually Abu Dhabi. <laughs> Bravo. I think it's on the map here. There we go. Despite high ideals based on Islamic jurisprudence, enslaved Africans were frequently subjects of abuse. Punishment for uncooperative slaves most often took the form of beatings with sticks and imprisonment in shackles. The story of one enslaved African pearl, diving, pearl diver is revealing. Mubarak was five years old when he was kidnapped from Zanzibar. The year was 1895. He was brought to Sur and sold at Dubai, where he became an enslaved pearl diver. Many years later, at the start of the 1930 season, Mubarak proved too ill to dive. His master, who was heavily indebted to some of Dubai's merchants on account of falling earnings, had become desperate. He beat Mubarak for refusing to dive, even when he was lying on his sickbed. When Mubarak told his story at the Muscat Consulate, officials noted marks of abuse on his back. Other enslaved divers were burned with hot irons as a form of punishment, and others were enchained. Women also experienced abuse. Jealous wives of masters could be especially harsh harsh toward enslaved women. One woman named Khadiya, who was, as a young girl had been kidnapped from East Africa in the 1890s along with her parents and served in the house of a man in Qatar. 
uh, named Abdulaziz, was married to one of his male slaves when she was about 20 years old. After her husband died at the Pearl Banks in, in 1926, her master's wife began treating her cruelly. Khadiya reported that, as my master's wife treated me with harshness and often beat me with sticks, and as her big daughter hit me on the head with a stone and struck me in the eye, I managed to escape. Another woman complained that when her work slacked a little uh, when she was ill, her masters beat her severely. Marriage contracts of enslaved men and women in the Gulf were usually arranged by their owners or by their masters. Uh, Male slaves were traditionally married at the age of 25, uh, female slaves at the age of around 15, and a slave's marriage was no guarantee against sale. Enslaved men and women were frequently sold away from their families. Female children of enslaved parents could be taken as concubines by their masters, and masters regularly exchanged female concubines, often for periods as brief as seven to ten days. And in a number of cases, when the woman was discovered to be pregnant, she was given in marriage to a male slave, and her child was treated as a child of slaves against local law and custom. In other cases, a pregnant concubine could be sold far away where the child would not interfere with the father's personal life. For most enslaved Africans in the Gulf in the late 19th and early 20th century, work, sexuality, marriage, and reproduction were affairs controlled by others. Still, many enslaved men and women succeeded in dictating some of the terms of their family life and their labor. But just as quickly as globalization created vibrant export industries in the Gulf, it also ushered in their demise. The Gulf's two leading industries, dates and pearls, collapsed in tandem in the late 1920s, both victims from, of foreign competition. And the new realities placed enslaved Africans into precarious positions. In 1902, David Fairchild, who's depicted here on the lower left-hand corner, he was an agricultural explorer for the USDA and was most famous for bringing uh, the Japanese cherry blossoms to Washington, D.C., visited the Gulf to acquire dates for propagation in California. Uh, In Muscat, he secured offshoots of the Farda dates from the Samael Valley, and then he visited Bahrain, where he got offshoots of the Halasa date from Hofuf and Hassa, and at Basra, he later uh, obtained the Halawi uh, variety. He subsequently steamed up the Tigris to Baghdad, collecting even more samples of dates from the largest date growers around there. I spent a little bit of time with his collections uh, in Coral Gables, Florida, and I brought some of the pictures. I've never shown them in a talk before, so I thought I would put them in here. Uh, So here he is entering the Gulf. Uh, He writes when he gets to Jask, just across, uh, he describes this wonderful ship that he'd never seen, a boat that he'd never seen anything like. Uh, He describes it in his his notebooks. Uh, And he says, as I looked up close, I discovered it was made entirely of palm fronds. I've never seen anything like it, but it's as beautifully made as any ship built in Maine in the United States. Uh, And you'll, of course, all recognize it as a shasha. But he photographed it, as well as uh, methods of irrigation in uh, in Basra. Uh, People who he uh, got uh, date offshoots from uh, in Baghdad. And uh, also we've got the uh, British agent in uh, Bahrain and the captain of, uh, of the ship that he came in on, who also was carried ashore. And he photographed uh, Captain Martyr being carried ashore in Muscat. And if you look up closely, you'll see that they are uh, African young men who are carrying him so he doesn't get his uniform uh, wet in the waves. Uh, and then this is actually uh, one of the workers in the um, British agency in Bahrain. Uh, and he's listed as unnamed, but in, the note, in his notebook, he describes him first as a slave, and then he crosses him out and says, no, the British agent is paying him. Uh, but there's some interesting notes that come up in, uh, in his... Uh, but if you look in his photographs, you don't have to look hard. You know, you'll find a strong African presence 
uh, throughout the Gulf. More than three decades after Fairchild returned, he was pleased to report that several of the varieties that he brought back from the Gulf had begun being grown in the Coachella Valley of California, around the city of Mecca. The USDA had determined that the best soil and climate for date production in the United States uh, was in the Salton Basin uh, in California, but irrigation there was a challenge. And then in 1905, water from the Colorado River, which was being diverted into the Imperial Valley for irrigation, broke through its canal system and produced a rush of water into the Salton Basin. And before finally restored, the Colorado River flowed for two years uh, in and formed the Salton Sea, which is now a permanent feature of the California landscape. That accidental flooding created the perfect environment for growing date palms in California. And then a horticulturalist named Paul Popino visited the Gulf in 1912 and purchased even more offshoots of the most desirable varieties and brought back 9,000 offshoots, 9,000 young palm trees, including the Fard variety. And that incident would spell the beginning of the end for Gulf date exports to the United States. Years before he became known as the leading proponent for eugenics in the United States, Paul Popino, uh, depicted here on the left, would ultimately come uh, to edit the Journal of Heredity and advocate publicly for eugenic sterilization, but he discovered his interest in heredity while propagating dates in the California desert. Popino was also unintentionally uh, one of the main reasons why the Gulf date export markets of the United States declined sharply in the 1920s. Popino visited the Gulf in 1912 to bring back offshoots of the best varieties of dates for propagation in California. He went to the very source of American imports to bring back the varieties that were already popular in the United States. The 25-year-old horticulturalist arrived in Muscat in October of 1912 and convinced the sultan uh, to permit him to travel into the Semail Valley. Faisal bin Turki offered to provide uh, camels, letters of introduction to seven allied sheikhs in the area, and an armed escort. Uh, but the sultan's authority in the interior was uh, was increasingly weak, and Popino's sojourn into the Smail Valley would twice be met by ambush, and the sultan was obliged to send a force to avenge the insult, widening the civil war between the sultan of Muscat and rival imamate in the interior. Uh, then, of course, Popino would ultimately make things much worse by bringing Muscat's prized commodity to California to undercut a major portion of Oman's economy. Popno traveled into the Wadi Sumail for 70 miles wearing a pith helmet and staying in the sultan's cousins and allies' houses along the way. And when he returned to Muscat, Popno arranged to ship a number of offshoots of the Fard and the Khalasa varieties and then went on to Basra and Baghdad, um, where he used connections through New York-based Hills Brothers Company to secure more than 3,000 offshoots. When Popino came down with typhoid fever and suffered for several weeks from delirium, missionary, American missionary doctors nursed him back to health, and ultimately his American connections paid off. The Basra dates were uh, complemented by the arrival of Muscat dates and about 400 Khlasa dates uh, from Hofuf, which were pr also procured uh, by an American missionary. Popino left Basra on a steamer uh, via London and Suez, and from London the offshoots traveled to New York, where they were transshipped to Galveston and then sent by rail and refrigerator cars to Thermal, California. The shipment amounted to more than 9,000 date palms. But when the trees from the Gulf reached maturity, a decade later, California began to replace the Gulf as America's primary source of dates. By 1914, 200,000 palms had been planted in Coachella Valley in California. With an additional injection of cash from the Gillette Razor Company in the 1920s and a flurry of speculation among Southern California landowners, California date industry took off.
For the Gulf, the development of California's data industry meant the loss of the region's largest export market. The decline in date exports to the United States after 1925 was precipitous. In the years that followed, Popano's investment paid big dividends. California's date industry grew exponentially and replaced the dates imported to the fruit jocks of Brooklyn and Basra uh, from Basra and Muscat. By the late 1920s, California dates were being harvested and brought immediately to markets around the United States. Popano, Fairchild, and others like him had used the tools of global trade to undercut a major world market. Likewise, in the pearling industry, the global forces that created new fortunes and drove demand for slave labor would also help destroy the slave-based pearling economy. In 1894, a Japanese noodle shop owner named Kokichi Mikimoto perfected the ancient Chinese art uh, of producing cultured pearls by inserting a spherical mother of pearl uh, uh, into oyster shells and inducing the pearl, uh, the, the oyster to produce a pearl. Mikimoto began producing cultured pearls from oysters grown in cages and received a 10-year patent on the process in 1896. His first crop of pearls were harvested in 1900 uh, by a uh, a group of female employees, exclusively female initially. Then the same year, he invited Emperor Meiji's popular cousin, Prince uh, Komatsu, to visit his pearl-growing operation. And when the prince attended the coronation uh, of, uh, of Edward VII in 1902, he presented some of Mikimoto's pearls uh, to the royal family, generating headlines in London and Paris. By 1905, Mikimoto had one million oysters planted in his oyster beds. His perfect cultured pearls began to enter the global market in 1908, just as markets were nearing their peak. Using industrial assembly line technology, Mikimoto constantly increased production. By 1913, he had perfected the cultured pearl to the point that it could not be distinguished from natural pearls, and he offered his product at about a quarter of the market price. He was known to say, I want to live long enough to see the day when we have so many pearls, we can sell necklaces for $2 to every woman who can afford one and give them away for free to every woman who can't. By the end of the First World War, culture pearls made inexpensive pearl necklaces available to working class women in Western countries. By that time, women had entered the Western workplace in massive numbers and had come to embrace leaner ideal figures, slimmer lines, and more masculine fashions. In the United States, that flapper look of the 1920s came to symbolize the growing independence of women. And that simple black dress popularized by Coco Chanel, the bobbed hair popularized by dance sensation Irene Castle, and the long pearl necklace popular in wealthy circles for decades, was now available for a fraction of the cost. Pearl consumption rose, but more demand uh, for, the in, for the expensive natural pearls declined. The decline devastated the Gulf in addition to European dealers in natural or oriental pearls, and the Great Depression was to provide the final blow to the Gulf pearl industry. Although the Gulf pearl industry persevered through the rise of culture pearls well into the 1920s, the value of pearl production declined steadily from 1919 to 1929. With the onset of the Global Depression in 1929, the pearl industry then collapsed. Revenues uh, from pearl exports were reduced to levels even below the mid-19th century levels, and they never recovered. The U.S. and Japan used technology to mimic, exceed, and replace the Gulf's production. The Gulf's key date market to North America dwindled soon after the United States developed an industry of its own, and likewise, Japanese culture pearls brought an end to global demand for natural pearls from the Gulf. So the forces of globalization that helped create vast markets for Gulf products, like dates and pearls, also helped destroy them. 
The collapse of these markets contributed to the decline of the slave trade from East Africa. There were other factors as well, including, of course, the widely publicized anti-slave trade patrols of the Indian Ocean by the Royal Navy. But in addition to that, there were also things like the Portuguese expansion in Mozambique and clamping down on the independent sultanates at places like Angosh, which were formerly major centers until 1902 of uh, exports for, uh, of, uh, of enslaved Africans for the Gulf. And the rise of new sources of labor, particularly after the devastation of the First World War in Baluchistan and famine, uh, with new sources of labor coming from much closer at hand, from Baluchistan. With the decline in demand for African labor, many enslaved Africans uh, were freed, only then to be cast out uh, to find, uh, to make their own way and to work independently. Some found work in the new growing oil industry or in the Gulf's growing cities. Some of these individuals continued to hand over their income to their masters, while others uh, lived uh, with their former masters in forms of dependency. In 1936, the British political agent at Bahrain reported that one old man, a former slave, actually believed that his government-issued manumission certificate, which attested to his freedom, was in fact a confirmation of his enslavement to his former master, who was then obliged to feed him. That expansion of the Gulf, date, and pearl industries uh, thrust many enslaved Africans uh, into the hard life of enslaved pearl diver or enslaved plantation labor. And the collapse of those industries then thrust them into further precarious positions. Enslaved Africans contributed in meaningful and significant ways to the economy, culture, and life of the Gulf. But tragically, much of that history uh, seems destined to be forgotten. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.